Okay. Again, it's Ecclesiastes 3:18 to chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read it. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see they are like animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rides upward, if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Chapter 4. Again I looked and saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and that they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all the toil and all achievement spring from one's person, one person's envy of another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And God bless his word. Every day as you wake up, you grab your cell phone, you turn it on, you look at the news, you consider what's going on in our world today. You're faced with two issues. The first is the facts. What happened? The second is what does it mean? And so what we have in Ecclesiastes is the, narr- the narrator who wrote the book is looking at the world as he sees it from his perspective. And the first thing he's doing is, is he's looking at the facts and he's saying, this is how it is. It is what it is. And then throughout the book, he's constantly giving us what he sees. And occasionally in the middle of the book at different points, In the midst of talking about how it is, he will tell us then what sense can we make out of it? What meaning do we have in the midst of it? How can we live our lives in light of the truth of what he's seeing? Now, what I'd like to do at the beginning of my message is I'd like to invite you to play the role of the narrator in Ecclesiastes. And I'd like you to take about 20, 30 seconds in just a moment and think about this one thing. Think about an observation that is so true, so compelling, and so undeniable that no one could possibly disagree with you when you say it. I want you to describe the world as it is. Any aspect you want to. And I'm going to give several of you an opportunity to share your narrator's perspective on our world as I then take us into five aspects of the narrator greater of Ecclesiastes and how he saw our world. So think for a moment. I'm going to give you about 20 or 30 seconds. How would you describe our world? What is? Okay, we have some roving mics. Um, So come on up. All the roving mic people are going to come up and they'll be able to look out and then see those of you who are um, 
willing to share with us. You play the narrator in Ecclesiastes. Who would like to tell us the world as you see it? Indisputable, undeniable. Here we go. Tell us your name first. Okay. I see it blue because of water. Can you say it again? Blue because there's water everywhere. A little bit louder. Colored blue because of water. Okay. The world is colored blue because of water. Okay. Someone else. What do you see as you look out on this world? I'm, can you speak up a little bit, or maybe we could turn your mic up? Unfair. Unfair. The world is unfair, okay? Undeniable, indisputable. Someone else. Oh, I'm oh. Hi. <laughs> it's broken because of sin. The world is broken because of sin. Someone else. The world as you see it. You play the role of the narrator. We have two over here. Three over here. The world is the world. The world is the world. That was profound. Okay. Um, someone else. Turmoil. What? Turmoil. The world is in turmoil. Okay. Someone else. Uh, human beings act with purpose. You cannot deny this without falling into a form of contradiction. Okay. Now... I'm going to ask you to say that again, a little bit slower, and, th- and ask yourself this question. Would everybody in the room agree with you? Okay, here, here we go. Human beings act with purpose. Okay, stop there. Human beings act with purpose. Um, if you disagree with that, raise your hand. Yeah, see, I'm sorry, but that one doesn't quite rise to the standard of one we can all uh, accept. But let's hear the rest of it. It was very interesting, okay? cannot deny this without falling into a performative contradiction. Okay. Now that one, I don't even understand what, what, what you meant. So, um, forgive me. Uh, let's move on. Anyone else have, some, um, have another one? Narrators describing our world. Corrupt. Say it again. Corrupt. Our world is corrupt. Anybody disagree with that? Raise your hand. You see, even our children are serving as sages today. It's really awesome. Someone else? Let's have two more. I'm Paul, and the world is big. The world is big. Nobody's disagreeing with that. Someone else. One last one. Oh, two then. Okay. In the front, Christine. Okay, we'll get all of you. The world is a war between God and the idols. Okay, now I agree with you, but... It's a little bit too spiritual right now. You've you got to pick something that everybody everywhere would, would um, agree with. And I don't think that some people would agree with that because they're not spiritual people. Someone else? Hello. The world is confusing. The world is confusing. Okay. I think most people would agree with that. Okay. Any final person? Somebody dying to share? Well, thank you all for your comments. So this is what's happening in Ecclesiastes. If you look on the sermon outline that I've given you, I have five points. 
five points that I hope you think are indisputable. Now let's look at the first one that comes right from the beginning of the passage that was just read. I also said to myself, verse 18, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. So my first point is, is that humans are like animals. That's the first half of my first point. And that's something that's absolutely obvious. If you want to look at this from a scientific perspective, I went online last night because I remembered my son had told me something about chimpanzees and humans. He said, Dad, did you realize that chimpanzees share 96% of the same DNA with humans? And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. So I went online. I found out that National Geographic reported this um, in August on August 31st of 2008. Did you know that? That I know you think you're special because you're human, but actually you're very close to your cousin, the chimpanzee. Um, now, the second thing that, that you'll realize when considering what the writer to Ecclesiastes said is that people look like their pets. In fact, their pets start acting like their owners. How many of you have ever seen that? You see this person walking down the street and they look just like their dog. Or then you come over to their house and their dog acts just like them. It's really quite funny. Um, I have a little video I'd like to show you just to illustrate this. Could we... And make it big for all to see. Okay, shh. Gotta listen. Even cows like to snuggie. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? Think twice before eating bacon, people. Oh, boy. Oh, good fish. Yeah. Good fish. Think twice on Thanksgiving, people. Are you convinced humans are like animals? Animals are like humans. That's exactly what the writer to Ecclesiastes says. But then notice what he says. He goes on. God shows this to all of us. But then he says something disturbing in verse 19. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Do you see the problem? Even though there's such a connection between human beings and the animals that God has created, because God created them both. The problem is, is that there's nothing better in being a human than being an animal, because just as the animal dies, so one day all of us will die. And so are we better than the animals? The writer to Ecclesiastes says no. 
And when you look out at this world to see it as it is and see the fact that our beloved pets die and that one day the people that we love will die, you realize that death overtakes us all and it leads to the conclusion that he says in the end of verse 19 that everything is meaningless. Notice the second point I have on my outline that comes as we continue to go through the passage. In verse 20, the writer says, All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now this is very interesting because his point is this, that nobody really knows what happens to the spirit of the dog and the cat when they die and what ultimately happens to the humans when they die. Because he's simply looking at life as he sees it. How many of you have had a pet that died? Raise your hand. Anybody ever lost a beloved pet? Okay, that's happened to, to, to a lot of you. But we've never had our pet die and then come back and then be able to talk to us and then tell us where they went. Now, some of you don't know the person I'm about to talk about. Some of you know him. Um, recently, we had an opportunity to hear the Reverend Dr. Stephen Tong come from Indonesia to share a message about the Reformation and the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And that talk happened in our sanctuary a few Wednesdays ago. And I worked with Stephen Tong for more than two years in Indonesia. And we had a wonderful time traveling and sharing the gospel with people um, around Indonesia. And we only had one argument. And guess what it was about? It's about whether or not dogs went to heaven and whether or not there were animals in heaven. So Steve and I had the only argument we ever had. Um, and from the perspective of Ecclesiastes, nobody knows. From the perspective of Revelation, Jesus Christ comes back on a white horse. I think I won the argument. Um, there are animals in heaven. Stephen, you are wrong. Okay. Um, but what about people? What about you? Do you know for certain what happens when a person dies? When you stand there, like 500 people stood there yesterday at the funeral of Paul Huang, a member of our CM, of our Chinese ministry. When you look at a dead body, when you well, actually he was cremated, but when you consider the life of someone who is recently gone from us, do you really know what happens to their spirit when they die? The writer to Ecclesiastes at this point in his spiritual experience simply says, no one knows for certain. Let me ask a more probing question. Are you ready to die? It's one thing to say, I'm not quite so sure exactly where spirits go, or I'm not quite so sure, I'm not quite so sure where I'm going to go. But how do you deal with that? Are you ready for it? That's the question I want to ask you to consider today. Many of you are aware of what happened in Texas a few weeks ago. In a church, while people were worshiping, somebody came in and they shot many of the people. Even the pastor's daughter died in that horrible, senseless slaughter. And we want to join in prayer with all those families and with that church in that terrible tragedy that happened. But it reminded me of what happened to me shortly after I became a Christian. I grew up in a small town called Titusville, Florida. And there was a very large church in Titusville, Florida. Titusville had 35,000 people. 
And about 5,000 of them went to this one church. It was called Park Avenue Baptist Church. And the pastor, um, on one day, on a Sunday, was going to preach the message. And as he went to walk up, to mount the pulpit, just like I do every week as I walk up the stairs, as the pastor went to do that, somebody opened the side door and screamed, Sit down! The pastor sat down and in walked four people with machine guns. And then one of the guys with a machine gun stood up in the pulpit and he said, I want all of, the, all of you who are not Christian to leave right now. And I want all the real Christians to stand up alongside of the walls. We're going to shoot you. And I had just become a Christian. And I was faced with a choice. Do I run like a coward or do I stand there like a saint? And I watched many people who I respected, Sunday school teachers that I knew, run out the side. And after two minutes of standing there, watching four men with machine guns standing there, then the pastor stood up, stood in the pulpit. The men with machine guns walked out. The pastor turned to everyone and said, now I'm going to address my message to the real Christians here. It was a setup, people. And it scared me half to death. Um, but... But the point was, is, what about you? Are you ready to face a moment like that? A day like that? A situation like that? From the perspective of Ecclesiastes, the writer isn't quite sure who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. From the perspective of the New Testament, then, we look back on this question and we ask ourselves, can you know for certain? And we say, yes. Why do we know for certain? Because someone went to the grave and then came back. And from the perspective of the New Testament, all of us who are in this room today who know the Lord Jesus as our Savior can say confidently in our heart of hearts, we believe that we know what happens after the grave because we believe in our Savior who conquered the grave and who came back. Do you have that resurrection hope today? If you don't, let today be the day where you turn from your agnosticism, turn from your questioning, turn from saying like so many people do, there's no way you could ever know because they personally haven't experienced the grave yet and place your trust in the one who came back and told us about life. God wants you to have an assurance of your salvation, every believer. That's why in 1 John... John writes to us and says, These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Today, as you view life from the perspective of the Old Testament and consider the question of can anybody know, I plead with you, brothers and sisters and friends who are here today, put your faith and trust in the one who knows. There is only one who ultimately knows. His name is Jesus. And he wants to give you the same assurance that his disciples had when they saw him with their own eyes as being risen from the dead. Let's go on and look at the third thing we can see of life as it is from the perspective of the writer to Ecclesiastes. Here we're moving from a statement of it is how it is to a statement of this is what you should do because of how it is. And what we see um, as we go on in the passage is what we have in verse 22. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? This is a very, very interesting passage. And my point is that God wants you to enjoy your work now because you don't know what will 
happen after you die? You really don't know. So, from the perspective of Ecclesiastes, enjoy your work now. You know what, people? So many people today don't enjoy their work. Some of you who are students, who are studying so hard. How many of you took a test in the last week? Raise your hand. If you took a test last week. You see that? Probably 45% of our congregation took a test last week. That's my first question. My second question, how many of you enjoyed the test you took? Raise your hand. Okay, one, two, three, four, five. Okay, seven. Okay, we've got seven people who have been living in Ecclesiastes, verse 22. And the rest of you? The rest of you are somewhere... Yeah, exactly. Somewhere down there. Why is it that we don't... Why is it that we don't really enjoy our work? There's many different reasons. Some people don't enjoy their work because it's hard. Imagine if you were a construction worker building something like the World Trade Center towers. That would be a very, very hard job. Some people don't like their job and they don't enjoy their work because they feel like they're underappreciated or underpaid at work. And so many people feel like, I'm just not properly compensated for how wonderful I am in the job that I'm doing. And some of you have thought that. I know you have. That's why you're laughing. Um, Some of you are struggling with your work and struggling to enjoy it because you're too tired. Your work is too long. It's too hard. It's too difficult. Some people don't really enjoy their work because they don't think it's very honorable work or it doesn't come with a lot of perks or people don't necessarily respect it. I learned this recently. Two weeks ago, I was at Boston Sports Club and I I met a man and I asked him, you know, you always exchange pleasant questions. Where are you from? How long have you been here? You know, how many languages do you speak? That's a question I love asking people. Um, and I got a chance to t- talk to this man who I could tell. I didn't think he was born in America, but I knew that he had been here a while. So I asked him, I said, so um, what job do you do? What, what, what do you do here? And he said, I'm in environmental protection. And I thought about that. And, and then... As we went on and talked, I realized he was a garbage collector, but he said he was in environmental protection. So what was going on in that conversation? He was viewing the job that he was doing is not as good as like being a doctor, being a lawyer, being president or something like that. I'm sorry. You can't laugh like that. Um, So... (laughs) Because then you get me to laugh and then I forget what I was going to say. But... But the point I want to make, brothers and sisters, is is that some people just don't think very much of their work because other people don't think very much of their work. And that causes problems. So some people don't enjoy their work. Let me ask you today, do you enjoy your work? I remember when I was a student at the Eastman School of Music, you'd think that the work of a, of a Eastman music student would be fun. You know, you spend all day getting to practice your instrument. But it wasn't fun. People were neurotic. They were scared. They were like me sometimes, way nervous. I had this great, awesome opportunity to play wonderful music with people. And sometimes I was so scared that I was going to get nervous that I got nervous about being nervous and I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it until after I got married. And then after that, my whole life changed. I learned about grace. I learned about love. I learned about a lot of things and I started chilling out. But the point I want to make is, is that some of you who are students today, you forget the great blessing that you have. 
And God wants you to enjoy your work. Why? Because right now that's all you have. This is where you're at. Live in this moment of the now. Why? Because the writer says you don't really know what will happen later. It's a blessing to have the strength and the energy to do what you're doing right now. So Ecclesiastes wants you to own it. Embrace it. Be thankful. Be happy. Praise God in the midst of it. There's another observation we have from the text. Look at the fourth point on my outline. It is this. Because of oppression, death seems better than life. Three or four of you got that in your narrating of what the world was like. You seized upon the oppression theme. Listen to how the writer to Ecclesiastes in chapter 4 verse 1 seizes on that theme. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And what was the conclusion he came to? And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Wow. That's the life, the way, that's life for so many people. Maybe it's not life for you because you live in America and we're blessed with freedom. We're blessed to live in a country that's full of peace. But for many people, they live in environments of oppression. When I lived in Indonesia, I saw this every day. The poor were oppressed by the rich. And there was nothing they could do about it. Friends of ours that we knew and loved lived on top of trash heaps. And their children played on top of cobra's nests. And when I visited them, I came home and I cried and I cried and I cried. And I still don't stop crying when I think about it because of the oppression of the poor people in Indonesia. One of the things that happened last week, I don't know how many of you keep up well with the news, given the fact that 45% of you were taking tests last week. Maybe you didn't look at, at the news. But one of the things that happened was, is that Russia voted not to condemn Syria for using chemical weapons against their own people. And that was a big deal. Here was the rest of the world, the rest of the Security Council, standing together to condemn the use of chemical weapons in a country against its own people. And Russia isn't willing to do it. Brothers and sisters, that is oppression. It's right out there. And this is one of the reasons why I stand before you today and every week and tell you why I'm not ashamed to say that I believe the Bible and I call myself a Christian. Because there is no other way that you can understand our world than from the pages of what we see in the Bible. It is the best explanation of life as it is that I know of out there. No other philosophy can nail down sin, can nail down oppression, can nail down injustice and see it for what it is and call it what it needs to be called and challenge us to live in a way that addresses it responsibly. It's only in the Bible, people. I challenge you, bring me any other book. I've read them. I did an Asian Studies Master's at University of Hawaii. I read the Tao Te Ching. I read what Lao Tzu wrote. I read uh, Kong Tzu and the Lun Yu and the Confucius's Analects. I read all of the Chinese philosophers. I read what's out there. I've read the Quran. I don't see anything out there that so nails down our world as we see it other than the Bible. And so look at what he says. Our world is a world of oppression. When we had the missions conference last week, we had different seminars happening in different parts of 
of our building. And during the Sunday school hour, um, Baby Pemba from Angola, this lovely woman who loves Jesus with all of her heart, got up and blessed us all with a song. But we found out that Baby Pemba had lost some of her family members to the tragedy of war in Africa. And our hearts went out to her and to everyone else who's living in the middle of oppression. So you know what? The writer in Ecclesiastes says this. He says it's so bad that sometimes death seems better than life. Look at verse 2. I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. It's so bad that some people desire death. And so the writer to Ecclesiastes says that those who are dead are in a better position than those who are still alive. But then better than both of these is the one who's never been born. Life can seem so bad for some people that they wish that they had never been born and they wish actually that no one had ever been born because life is so full of suffering. Ecclesiastes is a call for us to consider how do we redeem our suffering. And it's a call for us to look at the Lord Jesus Christ who takes his own suffering and uses it to be a blessing to the whole entire world. I challenge you today, if you're reaching that point of despair, if you're stuck in the middle of point four because of oppression, that you feel like death seems better than life, don't stay there. Look at Jesus. Realize that because of what he's done, your life has meaning. Your work has purpose. And every single thing you do, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, is not done in vain because it's done in the Lord. And embrace our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus. And then if you'll notice the last point on my outline and the last point that we have from the text today is that your working so hard and desire to achieve is rooted in nothing more than envying others. Do you see that in verse 4 of chapter 4? And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless. The chasing after the wind. Isn't that true? Why do you want to get a better grade than someone else? It's all out of envy. It's all out of achievement. It's all out of comparing. Why do your parents get together and have these discussions about, well, my son's going to MIT. My daughter's going to Harvard. My daughter's going to Florida State. Ooh. Forgive me if you're from Florida State. But what happens is this constant envying, this constant jockeying for position. I learned of it at an early age because in second grade, I got my report card, my first report card in second grade. I got them in first grade, but I don't remember what I got. But in second grade, I remember what I got because for all of second grade, I got straight A's. And during the first six-week marking period, I proudly went to my grandma Nana's house and I showed my grandma, Grandma, look, I got straight A's. And she looked at me and she said, Did anybody else get better, son? Could never please that woman. Um, So... And then you wonder why I suffered with achievement issues going to the Eastman School of Music. You know what I did, people? Beginning in seventh grade, I decided, well, I'll never be able to be an athlete. That just ain't going to happen. And I'm not too smart in math. Dear Lord, I couldn't even get through Algebra 1. Calculus would have been a nightmare. I would have killed myself over, over calculus. But there was one thing I could do, and that was play trumpet. So in seventh grade, I realized, ooh, I can do this. And I'm really good. In fact, I can systematically challenge every person who's sitting ahead of me. Thank you, Grandma and Anna. You gave me that vision. Knock them off. And one by one, I knocked off every single person in the band as I challenged them. And I got all the way 
as a seventh grader up to the girl who was sitting in first chair position, Jennifer Sanders, my sister's best friend. And my sister says to me, Timmy, you're not going to challenge Jennifer, are you? And I'm like, you bet your booty I am. And I challenged her. I dethroned Jennifer Sanders. It was a great moment. I'm enjoying telling you the story. Why? Because all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. Brothers and sisters, that's in your heart. And so Ecclesiastes is a call for us to switch the whole reason of why we're doing what we're doing to a reason that's more sure, has a better foundation, and actually ultimately glorifies the God who gave us the ability to do it in the first place. Switch your motive to pleasing the Lord Jesus and realize that as we go through Ecclesiastes, this is life. It is what it is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had today to consider your word, to consider life as it is, the challenges of oppression, the honesty of our envy, and even the inescapable reality of our impending death at some point in the future. And we pray that as we wrestle with these big things, that not only will we realize that from a human perspective all things are meaningless. From a divine perspective, you have tinged every single moment of our lives with ultimate meaning because Christ has come back from the dead for us to give us life and hope and meaning. So keep our eyes fixed upon our Savior Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.